according to Mark. It's one of the first accounts of the life of Jesus, and our earliest historical traditions link this book to a Christian scribe named Mark, or John Mark. He was a co-worker with Paul and a close partner with Peter. And in fact, an ancient church historian named Papias, he recalls that Mark had collected all of the eyewitness accounts and memories of Peter and then shaped them into this account. But Mark didn't just randomly throw the pieces together. He's carefully designed the story of Jesus. In the first line of the book, Mark makes this claim about Jesus. It's the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, what's interesting is that this is the only time Mark is going to tell you what he thinks. For the rest of the book, he's going to influence you by simply putting Jesus' actions and words in front of you and showing you how other people react to him. Now, Mark's designed the story of Jesus as a drama with three acts. The first one set in Galilee, the third one is set in Jerusalem, and the second act shows Jesus on the way from one place to the other. And each of the acts focuses on repeated theme. So in Act 1, everybody's blown away by Jesus, and they're wondering, who is this Jesus? In Act 2, it's the disciples who are struggling to understand what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. And then in Act 3, we watch the surprising paradox of how Jesus becomes the Messianic King. Let's just dive in, and you'll see how it unfolds. Well, I hope that is helpful for you. It took a tremendous amount of time to draw that this week, and so hopefully that's a good... Uh, tool for you. So let's just do exactly what that video said. Let's dive uh, right in. The Gospel of Mark is the longest book that we have taught through since I've been here. And so we've kind of broke it up into those three acts or scenes like he laid out there on the video. We taught scene one uh, last spring, and then we taught scene two, the middle part there, uh, at the end of the summer. And so today uh, we're going to jump into scene three and finish the Gospel of Mark in the perfect timing leading up into Easter. And so the final section there in the Gospel of Mark, chapters 11 through 16, uh, focuses on the final week of Jesus' life and public ministry. Now this week is often referred to as Holy Week or Passion Week. Uh, both those are accurate terms. And the importance of the Passion Week narratives in the Gospels is emphasized by how much time is committed to them. Let me help you understand this. Think about this. Mark took 10 chapters to devote three years of Jesus' life and public ministry, and then he's going to take six chapters just to dedicate to the final week of Jesus' life. So do not miss that. Ten chapters covering three years of Jesus' life and ministry, and then here in the third scene, he's going to devote six chapters just to the final week or Passion Week of Jesus' life. Now, there's some debate about how this final week played out, about the little shifting of the days. And uh, so here's a little uh, chart that many would hold to in regards to the events of Passion Week. And so on Monday, uh, in Mark chapter 11, there's the triumphal entry. On Tuesday, he curses the fig tree, then he cleanses the temple. That's where we're going to start off today. And then on Wednesday, he confronts the leaders, gives a sermon surrounding his second coming. On Thursday, he celebrates the Passover with his disciples and is betrayed and arrested. Friday's the crucifixion, Saturday in the grave, and then Sunday, thank God, is Easter. Amen? And so that is kind of a lay, uh, layout of this final week of Jesus' life. And so the next several weeks uh, leading up to Easter, I want us to walk through and examine the final days of Jesus' life. There is a saying, a cliche that I think is true, it's, is this, dying men do not mince words. In 18 years of ministry, I've been in the room with people who are near the end of their life, and they don't chit-chat about the weather, 
Uh, they don't discuss whether or not uh, I think the Reds have what it takes this year. When a person knows that their days are numbered, their words and their actions are weighted, they are not idle in word or in deed. And so as Jesus is beginning his march towards the cross, that same is true of him. As he's beginning his march toward the cross, we see no signs of him taking his foot off the gas as uh, what it means to actually be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so he takes aim here in this uh, last scene of, of Mark at one of his favorite targets, the religious leaders over Israel in uh, chapter 11, verses 12 through 19. So let's look there this morning for a message to kick off this last part of Mark, uh, for a message titled, The Danger of Playing Church. And Jesus knows uh, that his days are few, and so he wants to make sure that people are not deceived by the danger of playing church and all the trappings of outward religion. So let's pick it up in Mark chapter 11, verse 12, and read down through verse 19 uh, this morning. It says, Now the next day, uh, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps uh, he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. And so they came to Jerusalem. And then Jesus went to the temple and began to drive out those who had bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. And then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it in, in a den of thieves. The scribes and the chief priests heard it and saw how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. And when evening had come, he went out of the city. Now, the section of verses that we skipped over here in scene 3 uh, is verses 1 through 11. It's the account of his triumphal entry. Uh, just a little side note, that is an event that was prophesied in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, hundreds of years before it ever happened, and it happened exactly as it was prophesied. And so Jesus is coming into this triumphal entry. Uh, people are laying down their coats. That was the sign of coronating a new king. People are laying down palm branches. That was a sign of joy and praise and celebration. As a matter of fact, a couple hundred years earlier, uh, when the Jews were uh, recaptured Jerusalem from the Syrians, the Bible says they entered it with uh, praise and palm branches. And so it's a time of celebration, a time of coronating a king, laying their coats out there is what that symbolized. They're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means deliver us or save us. And so can you imagine the excitement and the atmosphere, the electric atmosphere of that day's events and how draining it would have been. Listen, if that were us coming into town, we would have said, you know what, I need a day just to recharge my batteries. I need to downshift. Uh, we would have enjoyed a relaxing meal at a really fancy restaurant like Applebee's, maybe even Olive Garden, amen? We said, hey, I had a big day yesterday, keep those breadsticks coming. But not Jesus. At the end of this time, uh, look at verse 11. So there's this huge triumphal entry, all this emotional charge atmosphere going on, people just clamoring at him, yelling, for him, save us, deliver us, all those things. And look at verse 11, how he doesn't end his day at Applebee's. Look what he does. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. And so when he had looked around all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And so Jesus walks into the temple 
at the end of this big uh, triumphal entry, does not like what he sees. And so he knows that coming the next day, he's going to have to straighten some things out. And that's exactly what he does. He wants to remind everyone that, hey, outward religion is not going to cut it in the day of judgment. And so he wants to make sure there's not a lack of clarity of what being a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, in order to uh, drive this point home, we basically see two illustrations uh, that he uses. One's a fig tree and one's the temple scene. Here, let's look at both of these. So the first thing I want you to see is this, is that some people are playing church and are deceived. Some people are playing church and they are deceived. Now, I feel like a broken record. I feel like I've said this dozens of times over the past nine years, but we learn by repetition, so uh, let me say it again. The most common way that people are deceived about the genuineness of their conversion is when they look to their experience instead of the evidence regarding their conversion. In other words, they comfort themselves or other people comfort them by reminding them of some experience they had in the past. You remember when you, you, know, you walked down that aisle and, and I was there and, and they go back and they say, I you know, prayed a prayer at the end of VBS and or I cried some tears around a youth campfire, I got baptized or those kinds of things. And so, uh, but since that time, there's been little appetite for the things of God. As soon as they get out from mom and dad's uh, thumb, they had no appetite for the word of God, the house of God, or the mission of God. And they left all of that in the rearview mirror. But if anyone would dare ask them about the genuineness of their conversion, they would defiantly point back to an experience apart from any tangible evidence that Christ is in them and at work through their lives. In other words, they have an experience and no evidence. They have an intellectual belief that falls short of saving faith. Jesus, uh, in these verses, does two things. One, he curses a fig tree and then he cleanses a temple. Both of those are damning statements to, to Israel and their outward uh, religion, but in kind of different ways, uh, different ends of that spectrum. And so let's look at the first one again, the fig tree here in verses 12 through 14. On the next day when they'd come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he'd find something on it. It's like your kids are in the refrigerator. Is there anything here, right? And when he comes to it, he found nothing but the leaves, for it's not the season for figs, in response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. Now, is it just me or on first reading? Like we look at that and go, Jesus was hangry, right? He's like, I am hungry. There's not a fig on this tree. Curse are you tree. You are dead as a doornail. And so here's Jesus. He's hungry. He curses an innocent little fig tree. Uh, it's a little side note. This is the only destructive miracle in the Gospels where he doesn't raise something to life. He actually curses something. Thank God it's just a tree, right? And so what exactly is going on here? And so dial in with me here this morning. Um, the, the symbolism here in these verses, all throughout the Old Testament, the fig tree is symbolic of the nation of Israel. Let me give you some examples. Jesus uh, told the parable of the fig tree in Luke 13. It was a parable about Israel. Uh, Hosea chapter 9, verse 10 reads this way. He says, when I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on a fig tree. Fig tree analogy is used of Israel in Matthew 24, 32. It's used again in Revelation chapter 6, verse 13. So multiple places in the Bible, the fig tree is symbolic of the nation of Israel. So here's a fair question. 
uh, why curse the fig tree in this passage? Is that not odd, right? Like, listen, if your neighbor saw you outside in your garden yelling at your tomato plants, they tell their little kids, get in the house, right? And so what's going on here? Well, knowing that the fig tree is symbolic of the nation of Israel, uh, basically, Jesus walks up on this fig tree. And let me give you a little horticultural lesson, all right? And so figs would not produce ripe fruit until June, July, August sometime. So this would have been in the springtime around Passover. And so Jesus walks up, and some have argued that, hey, at that point in the spring, there should have been at least some small, unripe fruit on there. The person was really hungry. They could have ate some just to stave off some hunger. Uh, some would argue by the presence of leaves that not every fig tree died over the winter, and so there would have been some leftover fruit from last year's crop. But either way, no matter if you're an early fig or a late fig arguer, the point is still the same. There should have been fruit on the tree that identified it as a fig tree, but the fruit was barren. The tree was barren of any single fruit. So here's what Jesus is basically saying. Here's what picture of all this is. He's saying, hey, the fig tree, you're Israel. And despite the fact that you would lay claim that you're good with God and you're standing with God is okay because you are Jewish, so those you've had an experience of being Jewish, uh, the sad reality is when your life is examined, there is no fruit of repentance in your life. There is no fruit of conversion. There is no gospel fruit. There is no fruit of obedience in your life. Yes, you've had the experience of being uh, Jewish, but when it comes to true fruit conversion in your life you are barren and you are deceiving yourself you are simply playing church and if we build a bridge of application this is the person today whose life has no discernible pattern of obedience this is the person today who has no appetite for the things of God this is a person today who never hungers for the holiness of Christ in their life, but yet uh, they would point back to some experience, a, a baptism or a confirmation or a profession of faith, but there's no fruit in their life of repentance or obedience in their life. Can I just tell you this this morning? The assurance of your salvation should not come because you wrote down a profession of faith in your Bible at some point in time. The assurance of your salvation does not come from the experience. It comes from the evidence that Christ is at work in you. And Jesus looked at Israel and he said, you know what? You're like this fig tree. You've had an experience of being Jewish by birth and you've put all of your hope, all of your confidence in that experience. But upon closer examination, that will not stand in the day of judgment. There is no discernible fruit on this tree. Let lots of people do that very thing. They would go back or someone would remind them of some experience they've had. John Piper has the best illustration of this. So let me just quote him because it's better than I can do. John Piper said this. He said, the reason I know I'm alive is not because I have a birth certificate. The reason I know I'm alive is because I am breathing. Do you remember when you were little and you brought that first baby home? And you were freaked out in the middle of the night? What did you do when you were freaked out when you had that baby home just a few days? What would you do? Would you wake up and go, where's the birth certificate? No, what you would do is, number one, you'd tell your spouse, you need to get up, right? Just be honest. And then you would go and what? Put your hand under their nose. Remember that? Now, by the time you got to the fourth one, you're like, right? They're fine. They're fine. I think I heard a scream and an intruder come in. They're fine. You're dreaming, right? 
But the first one, I mean, wake up, hand under the nose, right? Here's what he's saying. The reason you knew they were alive is not because they had a birth certificate. It's because they were breathing. Listen, spiritually, the reason we know we're alive is not because we've had a birth certificate experience that we wrote down or someone else wrote down. The reason we know we're alive is we're spiritually breathing. Our heart hungers for holiness. We have a desire for obedience. We have an appetite for the Word of God. We participate with the people of God in the work of God. That's how we know we're spiritually alive. And if you're trusting in some experience and there's no obedience, he says, you're like a fig tree and it will not stand on the day of judgment. If you walk down an aisle, repeat a prayer at some point, but you have no desire for obedience and never have, hear me this morning, you don't need to rededicate your life again. You need to get saved. A.W. Tozer said this, the Lord will not save those whom he cannot command. And so some people are playing church and they're deceiving themselves all because they've had an experience. And Jesus looked at the nation of Israel in that fig tree and said, you may have the experience of being Jewish, but there's no fruit of conversion in your life. You're just playing church and you are deceived. Israel was outwardly fruitless, was the message of the fig tree, but they were inwardly corrupt, is the message of Jesus flipping over the tables in the temple. And so this is a picture that some people are playing church and are deceiving others. These people are not deceived by their own religious experience despite a lack of fruit since that experience. They're just the opposite. They're deceived by their outward religious activity. They comfort themselves uh, with Bible knowledge and church attendance and uh, religious ritual. But let me tell you why, why none of those things ultimately should be comforting. It's because those are the same things that Judas was comforted by himself. Judas, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, was filled with information about Jesus, but he was never transformed by Jesus. Listen to Matthew chapter 26. Jesus, uh, Judas admits with his own words he's never been transformed. So listen to Matthew 26. When evening came, he's reclining at the table with the 12. And while they're eating, he said, I assure you, one of you will betray me. Deeply distressed, each one began to say to him, Surely, listen to these words, Surely not I, Lord. And he replied, the one who dipped his hand with me is in the bowl, he will betray me. The Son of Man will go out just as it is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Listen to this. And then Judas, his betrayer, replied, surely not I, Rabbi. You have said it, he told him in Matthew chapter 20. Did you see the language there? As they're going around the table, every disciple except Judas says, Surely not I, Lord. It's the word master in the original language. It means I'm submissive to you. You are my Lord. But when it comes to Judas, he doesn't say, Surely not I, Lord and master. He says, Surely not I, Rabbi, teacher. In other words, Jesus Christ was not Lord of his life. He was a teacher he respected. He was someone that he learned from. Judas was informed, but he was never transformed. Judas knew all about Jesus' life. He had sat under some, some of his greatest sermons ever preached. He had been there when he had cleansed and healed lepers. He had seen the sight return to the blind. He had seen people raised from the dead, paralyzed men, 
picking up their mats and walking in, demons being cast out. He firsthand saw and had knowledge of the power of God, but it did not transform him. It just informed him because Jesus was not his Lord. He said, surely not I, teacher. And so what does the example have to do with this passage? Just like Judas was religiously active on the outside but corrupt on the inside, so were the Jewish leaders and the temple was the epicenter for all of that outward religious activity. The activity surrounding the temple was the exact opposite of the fig tree, which had no works. This is not a picture of a person who professes faith but has no works. This is a picture of a person who substitute works for saving faith. This person, the first person is deceived, professes to be a believer, but they never darken the door of a church. The second person is deceived while sitting on the front row every single week. I don't mean that literally, guys. I just want to acknowledge that, all right? This is a person when asked about their relationship with the Lord. They answer with church attendance or Bible knowledge, and we can be deceived by that and deceive others. But Jesus is clearly not, according to verses 15 through 17. Look at 15 through 17 again. It says, so they came to Jerusalem. It's on Tuesday. And Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the table, the money changers, and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. And then he taught them, saying, It is not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of thieves. Now, can we just uh, take off our super spiritual hats even for a minute, uh, even though we're in church? And can we just openly, in the flesh, acknowledge how great would it have been there with a bag of popcorn, right? Like maybe uh, some of those chocolate-covered raisins that the Bible calls manna. I think even... Chuck Norris would have been intimidated. Am I right? Like Jesus in there flipping up tables, and everybody's like, whoa, 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 what's going on here? And so now, this is a jaw-dropping account, but here's what I want you to know. This is not the first time Jesus flipped over tables and cleansed the temple. The first temple cleansing is recorded in John chapter 2, verses 13 through 16, near one of the Passovers. This is a second temple cleansing near the end of Jesus' life. And so let me describe the temple to you so you can put yourself into the scene here uh, in Mark chapter uh, 11. And so uh, the idea is sometimes there's uh, confusion about the temple. So let me just give you a little quick history lesson where there's a point to it, so stay with me, all right? The first temple was known in Scripture as Solomon's Temple. It was built around 1000 B.C. after King David conquered Jerusalem and made it his capital. And this is what's uh, known. So the people come in in 86 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar destroys the temple. Uh, The Jews are taken into Babylonian captivity. Uh, But at a point in time, they're released from captivity. And they go back and they build a second temple. And the second temple is known as Herod's Temple. The reason it's called Herod's Temple is because he refurbished it. And he expanded it. Herod's temple was twice as large as Solomon's temple. Herod's temple would have held thousands of people. It was around 35 acres is how big uh, this temple was. Herod's temple stood until 70 A.D. when the Romans came in and destroyed the majority of it. Now, if you ever see Jews, people at the Wailing Wall, bending over, praying at the Wailing Wall, putting prayers in that Wailing Wall, that actually is a remnant of the western wall of Herod's temple. That's still standing today, all right? And so the reality is, let me show you a diagram of how it was laid out. And so here's Herod's temple. So uh, Herod put this outer gate on the outside, and in doing so, uh, he created a court 
for the Gentiles. And so they couldn't go into the inner temple. That outside part of the inner temple was what's known as the court of the women. And then there were uh, the other place only Jews, male Jews could go. But on the outside, the Gentiles' court, they basically had turned that into a bazaar, B-A-Z-A-A-R. A flea market for God, if you will, all right? And this is where Jesus is at when he's flipping over tables in the temple. He's in the Gentiles' courtyard because here's what they were doing. They basically cornered the market at that point in time. Let me explain. So uh, during Passover, thousands of people, the attendance of the, the place would swell, and thousands of people would come during Passover to make sacrifices. And as a result of that, they would set up in the Gentiles' courtyard two things. One, they would sell sacrificial animals so you didn't have to carry it for hundreds or thousands of miles on your way to the temple. They also, inside the temple, the Gentiles' courtyard, they would also offer a money exchanging service. So if you brought foreign coins with you from the place you came from, one of the things that was required was an annual temple tax. And so they would exchange money, and then you would get that. And so they were providing a legitimate service, sacrificial animals and money exchanging for the annual temple tax. Here's the problem, though. About two weeks before Passover, the Jewish religious leaders would go around to all the other money-changing shops in town, all the other animal-sacrificing places in town, and they would shut all of them down heading into Passover. You know why? Because they wanted to corner the market. And so when you came to Passover, the only place you could buy a sacrificial animal for worship, the only place you could exchange money so you could pay the annual temple tax was in the Gentiles' courtyard, and they were charging exorbitant fees knowing they were the only ones providing that service. And so Jesus walks in and says, this should be a house of prayer, and you turned it into a den of thieves, and I'm not having it is exactly what he's saying here. Now, not only were they charging exorbitant fees, but they were exploiting the poor as well. Look at verse 15. So they came to Jerusalem. The, uh, Jesus went to the temple, began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple. So again, he's out in the outer part there. Uh, and then he flipped over the tables. And then what it says, and the seats of those who sold doves. Now, doves were the sacrifice for the poorest of people. They couldn't afford a young bull or a goat or anything like that. And so not only were they charging exorbitant fees... And negating the worship that the temple should be characterized by. They were exploring the poor. And he says that this, where you're selling doves to the poorest of people, you're ripping everyone off in my name. And so he flips over the money changing table for the temple tax. And then he says, for those of you who are exploring the poor, that the only chance they have to buy is a dove for sacrifice. He said, I'm driving you out of your seat as well. And so this is what these people were playing church. And it wasn't a lack of religious activity like the fig tree represents. These are people who comfort themselves by their outward religious activity and ritual. But Jesus said, hey, listen, you may be doing the right things on the outside, but on the inside, your heart is far from me. You're not interested in me and the promotion of my worship. You're interested in your own greedy, selfish game. You may be deceiving other people by all your religious activity, but I am not deceived is what Jesus is saying. And by playing church, you may be fooling the people around you, but you are not fooling the one who will judge you. Jesus said, you, you can comfort yourself with all the religious activity you want. We're in the very epicenter of the temple, but I'm not deceived. I know where your heart's at. You're playing church. Well, here's the third thing I want you to see, and this is the good news, is that Jesus is looking for true worshipers. 
He says, hey, for those of you who had an experience but no fruit in your life, you're playing church. For those of you who have got a lot of outward experience but your heart's far from me, you're playing church. On both ends of the spectrum, you're playing church. But for those of you who are interested in true worship, I'll receive all who come to me and no wise I will cast anyone out. Who will Jesus receive? Anyone who sincerely desires to worship him. Where do I see that in the text? Look at verse 17. And he taught them saying, it's not written, my house should be called a house of prayer. Now here it is. Don't miss this. For who? For all nations. Now we look at that in our current context through the lens of missions and we're like, that's right. We take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth, right? Acts 1, Matthew 28. We're all about that. Absolutely. But in their day, that was a revolutionary statement. Because here's what happens. Um, the Gentiles, if they couldn't experience true worship here because it had been turned into a den of thieves, that they didn't have temples like the Jews had. They couldn't say, oh, true worship's not here. Let's just go down to the other temple. This was the only temple that had the core of the Gentiles where they could go and hopefully experience true worship. And so Jesus is furious. He says, hey, they're sincere Worshippers who are coming, this is their only chance to encounter me in genuine worship. Instead of them encountering genuine worship, you turned it into a den of thieves, what it should be, a house of prayer for all nations. And what he's saying here is this, don't miss this. He said, I don't care what your background is, Israel. I don't care about your religious activity in the temple. What I'm interested in is not other Jewish people, I'm interested in Gentiles too. I'm interested in anyone, despite their past or their pedigree, who desires to sincerely worship me. Now, here's the good news of the gospel. That same truth is true today. Regardless of your past and regardless of your pedigree or your position, Jesus still is looking for and openly receives anyone who desires to sincerely Worship him in spirit and in truth. That is the good news of the gospel. That this house of prayer should be a house of prayer for all nations, regardless of your past and regardless of your position. And so the good news this morning is this. If you have a desire to come to Jesus this morning with a sincere heart and to worship him alone as Lord and Savior, he will receive you, and in no wise will he cast anyone out. That is the good news of the gospel. He's not interested in people who are playing church, who have made a profession of faith, had some experience, but there's no fruit in their life. He says that will not stand in the day of judgment, just like the fig tree. He's not interested in the people who have all this outward religious activity, but they know in their heart of hearts where God already sees they don't love Christ they're just playing church and, and comforting themselves and deceiving the people around them by all this outward knowledge or activity he says that will not stand in the day of judgment you're just playing church but anyone from any nation who desires to worship me I'll receive those people and welcome them into my family as sons and as daughters regardless of their past regardless of their position Regardless of their prestige, Jesus is still looking for true worshipers today.
That is the good news of the gospel. Would you bow your head this morning?